In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 4. A king is in danger, a plot to kill, and a surprise twist. Ishbosheth, Saul's son and rival king of David, is in trouble. His strongest ally is dead and his kingdom is crumbling. He doesn't know who to trust or what to do. Two of his own commanders have a plan to end his misery and secure their future. They sneak into his bedroom and do something unthinkable. They think they've done a great service to David, but they're in for a shock when they meet him face to face. How will David react to their deed? What will happen to Ishbosheth's legacy? Find out today. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Friday, June 16th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is made possible in part by a generous gift from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF publishes and translates and distributes Lutheran books and materials that are Bible-based and Christ-centered and Reformation-driven. Whether it's a catechism or a hymnal or a Bible storybook or a devotional, LHF provides these resources free of charge to pastors and missionaries and lay people who need them. To learn more about LHF and how you can partner with them in this vital mission work, visit their website at lhfmissions.org. That again is lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning, please join me in welcoming my guest to help us open up, explore 2 Samuel 4, and see the end of Ishbosheth's reign. It's the Reverend Dr. Peter Elliott. He's the pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington. Pastor Elliott, good morning and welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Good morning. Great to be with you. Great. It's awesome to have you back. It's been a little while since you've been on the program, but I'm certainly happy to hear from you today. How have things been going for you and the saints there at Messiah Lutheran since we last talked? Yeah, yeah. no, things are going uh, fantastic here at Messiah. It, it might surprise people from the Midwest that uh, there are confessional Lutherans in Seattle, but that we do exist, and, uh, and the church is going great. Well, I can certainly vouch for you. I know that. And I'm always happy to hear your insights on the program. Um, We're in the time of Pentecost. Down here in the Midwest, things tend to slow down just a little bit in the summer. Is that the same for you up in Seattle, or are you just busy doing all kinds of things? Uh, That's probably how it should be, but I'm uh, being my first year here, um, I have a lot of planning uh, how we're going to do adult confirmation, how we're going to do youth confirmation. Uh, we decided to do some small groups this summer uh, just to get to know each other better. So I, I learned more about each uh, each individual member. So uh, I sh- it should have been slow, but I made myself busy. <laughs> well, that's good. Well, it's always good to keep busy, too. So I, I can feel your pain there. Well, brother, uh, we have a, a short but very interesting uh, chapter to look at today, chapter 4 of Second Samuel. Um, I'm eager to dive into it, but I think it'd be a good idea for us to start our time off together in prayer, as we always do. So I invite you to lead us in that prayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the life of David and for the wisdom we see in David and and the love and mercy we witness. But we also thank you uh, for the son of David and how he displayed those traits in an even greater way, and that he has shown mercy to us and love to us. And we ask that uh, you would open our ears to hear and our minds to understand and our hearts to believe, and that we would 
uh, be doers of the word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, you know what? What I like to do, because sometimes people miss the previous episode, is I like to catch people up. Um, would you care to tell us what, what's been going on that causes us to get where we are today? Yeah, so uh, Ishbosheth uh, has a, a reign for two years that coincides with uh, the beginning of David's reign after the death of Saul and Jonathan. Um, you know, uh, one of the amazing things about David is, is David's love for the family of Saul. Uh, despite Saul's behavior towards him. You know, if you think about David, uh, David's a fellow circumcised Israelite to Saul. You know, he's, he, and, and David's got a, a great love for all the Israelites. Um, he's Saul's greatest servant. He calls Saul the Lord's anointed. He's Saul's champion in battle, fighting all the battles that Saul should be fighting. He's Saul's musician, comforting Saul. He's Saul's captain of the guard. You know, David is Saul's bodyguard. He's honored in Saul's house. David is Saul's son-in-law. He's Saul's son, Jonathan's best friend. He's made oath to Jonathan. He spares Saul's life twice. Um, and so when Saul dies, maybe surprising to people, David is the chief mourner, mourning Saul's death. Um, and, uh, and when David hears of Saul's supposed mercy killing, which is actually a fib, uh, but a guy claims to, um, uh, you know, uh, do this mercy killing, David says, no. Uh, that's murder, <laughs> as we as we Lutherans confess. And so David is the executioner of uh, Saul's supposed murderer. Um, and so David mourns Saul. But then uh, Abner, uh, uh, Saul's general and Ishbosheth's general, uh, has uh, gotten fed up and uh, joined David. Uh, and David accepts Abner. Uh, but then um, uh, Joab and Joab is, uh, and his family murders Abner. Um, so then David's mourning Abner, mourning another enemy. You know, Ab, you know, he had worked with Abner. He was a, in some sense a friend of Abner, uh, but Abner was the rival general, and Abner was the one that hunted him through the hills and the caves, and, and yet David's mourning Abner. And so David's love for Abner uh, puts him in conflict with his own generals, uh, Joab and Abishai. And, uh, and then in today's text, we're going to see this theme continue because he's going to mourn Ishbosheth, and then later in the book, he's even going to mourn uh, Absalom, uh, his son who betrays him, and he's going to forgive the Benjamites, uh, which is also going to make Joab and Abishai, his generals, unhappy. So you see this consistent uh, love for the household of Saul and for the Benjamites, and especially the household of Jonathan, uh, and you, you see how this kind of puts David in conflict with his own uh, military. <laughs> Well, when you talk about David's great love for the family of Saul, we often will point to David's um, faithful admiration and respect for the office of the Lord's anointed, an office that he, uh, well, holds, at least for over Hebrew, and he's going to eventually hold it over all of Israel. Um, but it, it sounds like because of all these other connections, uh, you're, you're also making the case that he may had a love for Saul that was beyond just his uh, fealty to to God, but rather, well, because he was technically related and had all these other kind of connections. Yeah, e even the fact that he's a circumcised Israelite, um, I, I think I think we, we miss we miss this in the story that uh, Dave. We, see, we sometimes people think of David as bloodthirsty, 
But David's only bloodthirsty against the seven nations God commanded them to wipe out. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Girgashites, um, which includes the Philistines. Um, and when David's against those guys, you know, yeah, he does shed a lot of blood. But when David encounters Israelites, he is so reluctant to shed blood, um, and, he, and he kind of goes out of his way to be merciful. And so it's, it's not just that he's the Lord's anointed, uh, but it's, it's that he's an Israelite and all these other connections. And his love for I think that's a, especially. Well, I think that's a really important detail because as we look at the battles between, especially the between the people of Israel, we're talking about brothers against brothers. We're, you know, we, we might hearken back to our own civil war. There, this is essentially a civil war between the nation of Israel, and so David, um, just like Jesus wept at death, even though he knew what the end result was going to be. David trusts that God is going to unite Israel, that he's even going to be king over it, but it doesn't mean he doesn't lament over all the negative and bad things that happen along the way. Yeah, yeah I, think, I, I think bringing up our Civil War definitely helps, I think, Americans uh, imagine what this might be like. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's read a little bit. Let's get into the text already. This is going to be 2 Samuel chapter 4, and I'm just going to read the... Let's say the first uh, four verses. Here we go. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now, Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Baana, and the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth is also counted part of Benjamin. The Berothites fled to Gatim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, she fell, and he became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Okay, <laughs> stopping there. Uh, so... Maybe even four could have been left out. Let's look at one through three. So Ishbosheth, Saul's son, he he hears that Abner had died, you know, by the hands of the, the sons of Zeriah, which David is going to use several times throughout the second throughout Second Samuel to kind of recall to them their violent natures, which is often juxtaposed to his own more uh, reserved, faithful nature, even though he's a man of blood himself. Uh, but anyway, they hear that Abner has died, and you know it seems like Ishbosheth could use that opportunity to reassert his own authority over Israel. You know, I don't, I don't need this general. But really, it's just the contrary happened. He, he kind of becomes a little unstable. Uh, he, he, he's starting to be a little uh, panicked, like his dad was, and and now it's opening up, I guess, a, a weakness, a, not a power vacuum yet, but a, but a weakness here that it can be exploited. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, in, you know, if you, you study any of the ancient world, you realize how powerful generals are and how, you know, generals often became Caesars, for instance. Um, and Abner's a dude. Uh, you know, the story when he kills uh, the one son of Zariah, you know, it's very clear that he's a dude. <laughs> that uh, he's, he's no one to mess with and has the respect of, of the nation. And so, yeah, Abner, when Abner falls, uh, uh, I think Ishbosheth uh, doesn't have much hope. You know, it says his courage failed. I think the literal translation is his hands drooped. Uh, you know, he, he's got no strength left. Um, 
Interestingly, uh, Ishbosh, the, the name Ishbosheth is uh, inserted in the ESV, but it's not in the Hebrew. Uh, the Hebrew just says when Saul's son heard, um, which you know he doesn't call doesn't call him by his name, doesn't call him the king. He calls him Saul's son. You know to make sure we we notice this um, family connection in relation to David. I think. Yeah, and of course, Ishbosheth even itself is really a moniker that's just used yeah. to describe Saul's son. Um, I don't have any impression that uh, that Saul named his son "Man of Shame," right? So, <laughs> well, well, yeah. So, uh, yeah, Doctor Steinman talks about this, and other people talk about this. Um, so, it, it, if you look up Chronicles, his name is actually Ishbal. Ish, you know, uh, right. Ish meaning man, ba- Baal meaning master, the man of the master. Uh, and it seems like during the, um, the, the, the theory is that during the era of uh, Daniel and, Je- and Jeremiah, you see this pattern where they don't like using false god names. And so, like, for instance, uh, you have Belshazzar and Daniel, you know, where they've misspelled right. the, the false god Bel. Well, this idea that, that uh, um, an editor uh, actually changes all the Bales to Boshefs. <laughs> right, right, so, right. So uh, yeah, so his name was probably Ishbael, but the uh, but he's called Ishbosheth, and and the and the, if you're a Jewish reader, you understand what Bosheth stands for. Um, and this also well, I think that with, brings up. Well, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I'll just say that just what comes to my mind is then that brings or begs the question for me um, when they are in the contemporary time of this happening. So when things are taking place on the ground, you you're if that theory is correct, then they're they're calling him. You know, Ishbaal. Um, I, I yeah. guess I, I, while I agree with that theory, I think it's a valid theory. Um, it's not also uncommon for people to, um, not just in the records of things, but also even in the time of it, want to call people by, well, negative connotations. You know, I, I guess another example would be this sort of Sons of Zariah thing again. David uses that to refer to them, to remind them of their, their character. And so I, you know, I think it could be possible, I suppose, that they're calling him Ishbosheth even in when this is being written, because, well, the people, well, I guess the the victors write history, right? But the people here um, on the ground don't like the guy, and he has a negative yeah. reputation. Yeah, um, yeah, Baal isn't necessarily um, referring to the false god Baal. It can just mean it, it could refer actually in this case it could refer to Saul. He's, the man of his master, his father, Saul. Right. Um, right. Uh, but uh, but you, I, it does. Why I don't think it's just slandering this one guy is because the same. We have the same thing with Mephibosheth. The Mephibosheth. Right. Right. Um, it, it was probably originally either uh, Memphi uh, Ball, I think, or it's uh, in, in in Chronicles. It's actually his name is Meribal, which is the one who contends with Ball. Ball. So. Uh, so the, chron- the Chronicles gives us um, probably the accurate names, and then in Samuel we have the purposeful misspellings <laughs> to, uh, to, to highlight, uh, probably just because, um, you know, just kind of out of hatred of the false god that they misspell the names. Well, and they so. they uh, they do that uh, with, um, of course, the Tetragrammaton when they talk about God, and it becomes, you know, uh, 
Jehovah, if you pronounce it with the Adonai's <laughs> vowel. So they, they do it a couple different ways just to kind of indicate something in the text. So they added the, you know, the Adonai vowels to Yahweh. Uh, in order for people to avoid reading it. So, yeah, that, that makes sense, certainly as a theory. And you're right with Mephibosheth, which we're going to get to here in a minute. Yeah, yeah, I'll have to consider he's a, that. He, he's, a very positive, he's a very positive character, and yet he still has this, right. this shame in his name. Well, in any case, um, before we get there, though, we have these two sons of Saul, right? Benjaminites, and they are mm-hmm. uh, Ba'ana, uh, not Banana, which I keep saying in my head, Ba'ana, <laughs> And the name of the other was Rechab, Rechab, sons of Rimen um, from Beeroth. So these are like, you know, these two captains of raiding bands. Well, tell us about these raiding bands. Tell What would have their relationship been to King Saul? I mean, sorry, not Saul, Saul's son, Ishbosheth. Yeah, I mean, they're, uh, they're front lines, right? They're, 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 uh, you know pillaging villages of the enemy, right? Um, and what I think is really interesting about these guys is they assume that David is like most earthly kings, that David's going to be so impressed by their behavior and that, that he's going he's gonna to love their treachery and reward them. Um, and yet David is uh, not like the kings of the earth. He's, got a, he's a man after God's own heart, and he, he judges differently. Um, and so... And so, you know, that's going to really be kind of the theme of today. Right. And and at this point, you know, we don't really even know yet that they're doing it for David's benefit. He, you know, I guess the, 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 the story would have been familiar, I think, to the people that would be hearing this read to them. But at the same time, you know, if you're a, a new person to this, you're thinking, OK, um, these guys, um, these guys hear about it. And we're just being introduced to them, but they, they, obviously they're going to do something about it. And we, we might be led to believe that they're going to do it for their own benefit. But then we're told about Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, which we mentioned just a moment ago. Um, and it, it's, it, seems like, uh, it seems like it's just sort of thrown in there. Like, why do we care about this Mephibosheth guy? And certainly, why do we care about him being crippled? What, you know? So explain why it's important that the author wants people to know about this lingering son of Saul. Yeah, so, you know, this is the story of kind of the fall of Saul's house. But it, it's not a story like Ahab and Jezebel, where it's like the whole family will be cut off. You know, that, that God, God and David have a love uh, for Jonathan and his household, and um, the lineage will not be fully cut off, uh, you know. Uh, later, actually, David, um, actually, uh, under God's direction, hands over seven of Saul's uh, kids and grandkids over to, uh, um, who is it, the the, um, the Gibeonites, I think. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and so, and even then, it's like Saul's family is being still punished for their sins, and yet, and yet Mephibosheth is, is spared. So like this idea of Mephibosheth is spared is that there, there's a remnant and that, and that David is keeping his promises to Jonathan. Um, that, you know, David makes all these covenants with Jonathan between his offspring and Jonathan's offspring. Um, and, so, and so in the midst of the destruction of Saul's family and, and this tragedy and, and kind of Saul getting what he deserves, um, the mercy and the promises to the remnant uh, remain now when he's crippled uh this also might um if you're an original audience might 
uh, remember the king, you know, kings are said to be the ones that will uh, lead you out in battle every spring. Um, and because he's crippled, this, this guy's not going to be leading any armies. And so right. he, so, uh, so the, there's a, there's an end to the kings of Saul, but not an end to the lineage. Yeah, and I think that would be really important to people understanding why, if uh, there's a descendant of Saul still hanging around out there in the ether, why he wouldn't be next in line to take over from Mishbosheth. And the fact yeah. is, at least at this time, he's not going to be able to do that if he's lame or crippled in his feet or he, you know basically he has this um, injury that happened when he was five and it, and it's not something that's going to go away and and of course in this culture that's not something no one's going to give him uh, any benefits of the doubt for that or any abilities to try to overcome that he's just not going to be valid for that role so I think it's mentioned here as an aside to say yeah look you know I we know that there's more of Saul's kindred out there but this guy he's no threat and in fact, this comes up later in Second Samuel chapter uh, chapter nine. Um, you know, David is going to continue to keep his covenant with Jonathan. Um, we have verse three; it's a little while from now, but you know, he says, "Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him?" And they tell him there is still a son of Jonathan; he's crippled in his feet. Uh, well, regardless. David is compassionate, make, brings him to his own table. He, he, he continues to honor his covenant with, with David, his relationship with the family of Saul, and his high regard for the fact that Saul was, at least at one time when he was alive, anointed uh, to be the king of Israel. David uh, continues to take care of him, keeps his promises, which is, again, these great character, uh, <laughs> these great displays of character from David compared to the people around him, especially Saul's house. Yeah. 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 I keep on, I keep on remembering that, you know, that David is Saul's (laughs) son-in-law. So in some sense, he is a son of, son of Saul uh, by extension. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah, he is. He is. Well, anyway, um, so now we run into verse five. Now the sons of Rimmon, the Beerothite, Rechab, and Baana, Set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baana, uh, his brother, escaped. And when they came into the house as he lay on his bed in the bedroom, they struck him, and they put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head. And they went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron or Hebron. All right, stopping right there in the middle of verse eight. So these guys sense a coming change in the monarchy. Uh, at least that's one way to look at it. The Ishbosheth is kind of instable. Instable. He's going. He has all this panic. He's kind of. He, he's weak. He's his general is gone. I guess they sense a, an opportunity to make something happen. And as they sneak into the house, we kind of know what's coming. But I think it's a surprise, um, at least first on first reading, that they take his head to David. They're not looking. They don't have any chance of like getting any power for themselves. And the only descendant of Saul they can't get behind because he's uh, crippled. So they are trying to appeal to David. Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, 
and they think it's going to work. You know, I, th- I think they're going to be completely surprised. I mean, they just assume that any king would appreciate this. Um, uh, you know, just uh, fill in some gaps. You know, Ishbosheth is uh, in in a city trans Jordan. He's at east side of the Jordan, Mahanaim. Uh, I think they say it, and uh, and so when they take, you know, they they kill him east of the Jordan, and then they they uh, it says they take the road to the Arabah. This is the north south road along the Jordan River, and then they break west to go to Hebron at some point. Um, so you know they they rush from the one capital to the other capital, uh, so excited that they have done this deed and they're going to be rewarded. Um, you know he's going to lift up their head. Well, we'll see what he does. Right. Well, so the last time that someone brought a head of a king, or a head to a king, I should say, was when David brought the head of Goliath to Saul. And so they might have some sort of expectation of being rewarded, because back in 1 Samuel chapter 17, when that happened, David was rewarded by King Saul. He was given a position in the king's court, made a part of the the royal family freed from taxation. And so, you know, Recab and Ba'ana, they, they, I guess they have some historical precedent to expect some sort of reward, not, not just to mention the kind of, I guess, logic that one would have of, well, if we have two rival kings, if I, uh, if I defeat, kill one and bring it to the, the other, David's going to act just like, well, frankly, just like Saul would have acted. But that's their mistake, right? They expect David to behave like Saul, or or maybe more broadly, they expect David to behave like every human king that's probably ever existed. Um, <laughs> why they don't know of David's own reputation, though, because as you've mentioned earlier, we've seen David not react fondly to these kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're about to be very surprised. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we take a few moments as a break, and when we come back, folks, so don't go anywhere, we're going to keep on going through the rest of this chapter. Not a whole lot left in the text, but still lots of conversation. See you on the other side. Lutheran Church Missouri Synod cares deeply for those who protect our nation. Are you or a loved one currently serving? Ministry to the Armed Forces would like to help. We provide devotional literature to encourage faith. Send your mailing address to lcmschaps at lcms.org or call us at 314-996-1337. Those in uniform are comforted with Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and He helps me. Proclaiming Christ has been the sole mission of KFUO for nearly a century, and that proclamation has been reaching the hearts and minds of our listeners through music, Bible studies, and worship services. We love hearing about this good work in your life. If you'd like to share your own story of how KFUO makes a difference for you, please record your story in your own voice using the open mic feature on the KFUO app, or leave a voice message at 314-996-1542.
Greetings, fellow confessors of Christ Jesus. This is Pastor Brady Finner and host of Concord Matters. I'm excited to announce that we are starting a new study on the foundational Lutheran documents of the Augsburg Confession, along with the Apology. Our studies will bring you back to the 16th century, the history, the people, the politics, and most importantly, the Word of God. These writings gave the gift of a clear conscience to sinners by the pure gospel of Christ Jesus in those days, and they still do today. Join us. Open up your book of Concord, open up your Bibles, and let's keep confessing Christ. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Dr. Peter Elliott, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington. Listen, I know what it's like if you miss an episode of Thy Strong Word on the radio, but don't fear. You can always catch up by subscribing to the program on your favorite podcasting app. Or, and I really do recommend this, you should download the KFUO Radio mobile app. There you can listen to Thy Strong Word, you can catch up on former episodes, but you can also listen to all the great programs that KFUO offers. And if that's not your bag, then you can also listen live or on demand at KFUO.org. That even works on your cell phone, too. And if you want to share your thoughts or your questions about today's program or any of the programs, um, uh, well, any of the programs of Thy Strong Word, I should say, I'm always happy to hear from you. You can email me at PastorBoo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. Just search for Phil Boo. Let's stay in touch. Okay, now. Pastor Elliot, before the break, we just got to the point where uh, the sons of Rimmon, um, they, they went in and they, they murdered the king. I'm going to read verses 5 through 8 uh, all the way this time uh, once, once more. Now the sons of Rimmon, the Beerothite, Rechab and Baana, set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat. And then they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and they put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy. Who sought your life? Yahweh has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. Stopping there at the end of eight. Um, I wonder, uh, is there any significance to the fact that the way it begins, they come into his house and they stab him in the stomach? Is there any significance to the fact that this is very much the way Abner was killed? Uh, back in chapter two, verse twenty-three. Um, Abner uh, struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so the spear came out at his back, and there he fell and died where he was. Pardon me, uh, Saul. That's how. That's how. Um, okay, I'm a little confused here. That is how um, we see the death on the battlefield from Abner. Is there any inter- is there any connection to that? You think? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, it, they might, uh, you know. Abner uh, is uh, for clarity. Oh, sorry, by... sorry, let me interrupt. For clarity, for clarity, <laughs> that is um, how Abner died at the hand of Joab, <laughs> David's yeah. general. I was getting confused yeah. there, but that, but still, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. it's like we talked about this at length. He he tries to hit him with the butt of his spear, and and I still think he 
wasn't trying to kill him, but he ended up hitting him so hard it goes all the way through, stabs him through the stomach. Um, I, yeah. I, I was just wondering, so do you see, see any kind of connection there? So yeah, so you have Abner killing Joab's brother with the butt of the spear on accident, and then you have uh, Joab um, killing Abner, <laughs> um, you know, uh, you know, striking him in the stomach. And Simultaneously, so the, the third, right. And so this is the third striking in the stomach. It's like these, these people, uh, they, they like the, the stomach kill, I guess. Um, you, know, it, you know, we have this story in uh, Judges, you know, killing King Eglon. <laughs> so it's interesting, this kind of oh, yes. of uh, the, the, the favorite the, way of killing somebody. Where um, the handle just disappears because of the guy's girth, right? Yeah, well, yeah, I... I, yeah. I you know what? And you're you're absolutely right. Now that you bring it up in this way, maybe it's just that was an effective way of killing somebody. I mean, probably a kind of a torturous way. But that's not the only it, thing they it, did. It, they stabbed him in the stomach, but then they behead him. Well, it seems like in each of those cases, it's sort of uh, it's sort of an, an assassination. It's um, mm-hmm. uh, except for Abner's, which was probably accidental. You know, with the butt of the spear. Uh, but the but the other the other examples, it seems like this is something that you know. You almost kind of come in for a hug, and you <laughs> and you sneak a blade in, you know. So it, it seems like a right. dishonorable way to kill somebody. That, uh, yeah, that your enemy let you your enemy lets you get close because they weren't expecting it. You know, I, I don't think Abner's expecting Joab to kill him that way. Right. Well, and and there's one maybe, <laughs> and confusion is kind of the theme right now. But as I look at this, it there is a part of it that confuses me, and maybe you can help straighten it out. So they come into the house as he's taking his rest. They came in, you know, as if they're just going to get some wheat. They stab him in the stomach, and then it says they escaped. Then, then Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. But then it goes back to when they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. Um, just sort of a yeah. strange order of the words there. Are we just being told about their escape before they finish yeah. telling us about how they killed him? It almost seems like seven is an editorial comment. So that yeah, it does. Um, so that later when they bring the head, um, uh, you know that that it makes sense, and then he, David's gonna uh, hang them by you know hang them. So um, yeah, so I, I think seven's just an editorial comment to further explain makes it. Sense. Yeah, so it's sort of like okay, so they they escaped. Oh, and by the way, when they went into the house when he was laying on his uh, bed in his bedroom, they they actually beheaded him. You should know that. And then they took his head. Uh, yes, I definitely see that. Um, and they went by the way of Erba all night. They bring it to King David, and they say to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. I've always think I always think that's fascinating when when David is told that Saul is his enemy. Um, I don't think that Saul ever was David's enemy. Uh, David was Saul's enemy. Saul had made him his enemy. Saul looked upon David and saw him as an adversary, but I don't think that was requited by David. I don't think he would have considered Saul his enemy. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you could you could phrase this different ways. You could either say David has a love for his enemy, or you could say he's, mm, David doesn't consider him an enemy. You're getting at the same point either way mm-hmm. uh, that he that he doesn't view Saul as. Uh, someone uh, to hurt or harm or to wish ill upon uh, that, that he actually wants the best for Saul, sort of like when we want our enemies to repent and become brothers, right? Yeah, that, uh, I mean, uh, our preference is always that people convert, right? 
So, so yeah. Uh, so you know. even better way to look at it is his. He has love for his enemy, and he he wouldn't expect this. I, I think of David who's standing in the tent, and the guy who's with him. He's standing over Saul, the spear, the water jugs there. And what does he say? He says, "Look, <laughs> Yahweh has given into your hand your enemy." Yeah. And that's what they do. They say, look, Yahweh has avenged my Lord, the king, this day. You know, that word for avenge um, in the Hebrew is suggesting that, and of course, the combination with God's name it is suggesting that they say, look, we have done a holy thing. We, we have been the agents of God exercising judgment for you. And so they're, they're really playing it up. I would go so far as to say they're misusing the name of the Lord here in order to, again, try to get David to reward them. Yeah. Yeah, one way or another, God was going to get vengeance against Saul's family, but, but they're, they're wrong in their agency, right? <laughs> that, that, God didn't, that God didn't give it to them to do this. Um, and, and they, they, uh, they kind of think the ends justify the means, you know, and, uh, so so they are right and wrong at the same time. So even if something is the Lord's will, uh, do you have a command to do it? (laughs) So that is a really important and interesting distinction. Um, because even David, we would argue that when he had those opportunities to strike Saul, that he, in a way, did have the command to do it, but he was merciful. And these guys definitely didn't have the command, but we we see God doing that, right? We see God using even those with ill intent to bring about his will, uh, which is why it's important that we also understand that when we face the the <laughs> the enemies of our enemies this day, enemies that we should love or shouldn't consider our enemies, depending on how you want to phrase it, um, that... Uh, that even when they do us harm or, or trying to do things that are against God's will, um, you know, we have to we have to not return in kind. Uh, David's going to, of course, but he has that right. We we have to make sure that we do things according to God's will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agreed. And uh, yeah, so da- David's an example in many ways. Of course, we're not uh, kings or executioners, you know. But uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, in some ways, David, uh, you know, gives us. Um, an outline for our life. Uh, you know, I think David uh, has always been seen as an example to all uh, political leaders. Um, mm-hmm. And then also David is, uh, I think, reveals Christ to us too, how Christ judges. But so. what you said stands out, and that is that, you know, do we have that, I forgot the word you used, but basically are, are we the ones called to exercise this judgment? And I think that that lends itself to a, dis, a, a short discussion on on the you know, doctrine of vocation, right? You know, something yeah. might be godly for one person to do, whereas it would be ungodly for another person to do because of the distinctions that God makes upon uh, among vocations in this life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, so and it's especially these, important uh, when we think of kings and governments and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's always this debate in World War II. You know, is it if, if you're a you know Nazi soldier, should you assassinate Hitler? You know, that, that there's a whole debate there. But in, in in this debate here, it's like, do these guys have any any rationale for assassinating their king? And uh, you can't think of. Yeah, I don't think I don't think any argument would hold up anyway. But um, in this case, um, uh, they they really have no uh, a reason. The Ishbosheth. 
um, is, ser is simply serving his family. Uh, he's been put into this role. Um, we, we don't know of any evil that he has been doing. I mean, there's, there's no record of, uh, you know, crimes. Um, he's, his family put him in, in, in uh, as the head of the household, and he's, he's, he seems to be doing his best <laughs> other than uh, he had a little conflict with Abner, and Abner went against him. Well, I, and I also see that, that it's revealed to us basically here in the next little bit that um, they are uh, looking for some sort of reward. So I think they're doing it also not because they really think that the Lord is using them as agents of avenging <laughs> the, the name of David or any of that. They just see an opportunity. They see a man whose kingdom is sort of starting to turn against him. His own general is dead. He's basically so distraught that, you know, it's hot, so he's gone, and he's he's laying in the heat of the day. He's cooling off. He's trying to collect his thoughts. Maybe he's dead asleep, but he needs that rest. And and we're, no matter what you think of him, um, they don't have that right to take his life. Uh, so continuing yeah. on at verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Beerothite, as Yahweh lives who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and I thought and thought he was bringing good news. I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his own bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave 12 off. That's our last verse. But so, so David makes a pretty good point that maybe they should have thought about. It. And I guess it's yeah. possible that they don't know how—again, I there's no social ministry. There's no TV. The communications are a little slow, but things still get around. But yeah, th this, this guy who comes and says, hey, look, I, I killed King Saul. He, he was even asking me to do it, and I did it so he wouldn't be tortured, which was probably a lie. We— we're pretty sure it was a lie, but still, David, when he thought that he had killed him, he's like, "Nope, nope, you can't kill, you can't lay a hand. Uh, who are you to destroy the Lord's anointed?" Interestingly, here though, he doesn't call him the Lord's anointed, though he just says a righteous man. Um, that's kind of a, a contrast between Ishbosheth and his killers. They're unrighteous; he's righteous, but he's the man of shame. Right. So so how does righteous you've already hinted at it, but how is he righteous? I think he's he's trying to serve his household. Right? He's uh, that David finds no fault in him. You know, obviously he was a sinner, but David, David kind of, I think, can sympathize and, and see himself in Ishbosheth's shoes and, and doesn't blame Ishbosheth for what he's doing. Um, he's in, he's just, it's, it's just the situation he's in. Uh, so it's interesting. So he says, as Yahweh lives, you know, that's uh that's a little terrifying that, uh, this condemnation he's going to say is as sure as Yahweh lives. Well, that's pretty sure. Um, and, uh, Yahweh who's redeemed my life, you know, so they, they think, oh, David, we've helped you. We've saved you. And he's like, no, Yahweh saves me. I didn't need your help. Right. And then in verse uh, 10, so if even unrighteous Saul um, I, I, I held people accountable for his death. How much more for a righteous Ishbosheth? And if and if I consider a um, a mercy what what a society would call a mercy killing, if I consider that murder, 
uh, well, then I obviously consider what you do as murder. <laughs> so, so there's kind of this kind of argument of uh, lesser to greater. So if even Saul's death, if I if I did not if I didn't want Saul dead, I really didn't want Ishbosheth dead. And if I thought Saul's uh, mercy killing was murder, I, I definitely uh, consider you uh, have committed cold blooded murder. Um, and uh, and so I'm going to do what we do with murderers. That movement from you know, lesser to greater. We see it here, and we see it elsewhere, too. Even as Scripture and prophecy is fulfilled, we see that movement from lesser to greater on a, on a grander scale. So David really is exercising righteous judgment against people who deserve it. And yet, when David's antitype comes, the Christ— you know, we deserve that, and yet he takes the punishment on himself. I think there's this um, – I just I've just sparked in my head that that idea when you talk about that movement from lesser to greater. Yeah, it makes sense, uh, you know, grammatically, but it also makes sense on a grander scale. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, that um, that I think um, I think modern man would probably view. Uh, David's wars is exactly backwards, that we would view his wars against the Philistines as unjustified. You know, what did the Philistines ever do to him? And we would, uh, and we would view his, his wars against Saul and the Benjamites as also wrong, that he should have struck them down, that they, you know, they've sinned against him. Uh, so, we, like, if David killed Saul, I don't think anyone would bat an eye, but David, you know, s- slaughters a Philistine village, and we're like, what? <laughs> but, you know, David's the opposite. And why? Well, because he's, he's not basing his decisions in human reason, but he's basing his decisions in the Word of God. And, the, and God has commanded these nations to be wiped out, and God has made uh, promises to the Israelites, to the circumcised covenant people. And so David is simply trying to fulfill what God has spoken concerning these different nations. Um, and I think we see this in, in, in Jesus, right, that, um, that Jesus is going to make judgments the same way. But there's a lot of people that we would consider to be good people, nice people, but they're unrepentant and unbelieving, and, um, and they will be destroyed. And that shocks us, you know, that God would send anyone to hell. And then there's other people who have got great sins, um, who definitely deserve punishment, absolutely, but then ultimately are repentant, and they come to faith, and they are— they become God's covenant people. They are baptized. They are covered with the righteousness of Christ. They receive his mercy, his forgiveness, and they'll be spared on the last day. And that also doesn't seem right, that these people who have committed these great crimes would just have their sins erased. And so I think David's, um, how, you know, David's shocking judgments in the eyes of human reason, I think, are ultimately fulfilled in Christ and how he judges. Um, you know, Jesus says uh, in uh, Matthew 21, he says— uh, uh, to the Pharisees, it says the tax collectors and the prostitutes go in the kingdom before you. And why? Because right. when they heard John's preaching, they repented, but you heard it and you didn't. <laughs> you know, this is very offensive, you know. Well, that's, that's and that's another of that movement from lesser to greater, right? If if David uh, served God's will in situations like this, how much more will Christ, who fulfills, you know, the uh, the prophecy or the type of David, how much more will he be just according to God's will? And and yeah. thankfully, part of that justice and part of that God's will is that um, those who repent are saved. You know, I have a quick question, yeah. and it's not exactly on topic, but it kind of is. We see here that David 
basically destroys them. In fact, let's read that, verse 12. And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Uh, before we even get into, you know, David honoring Ishbosheth, um, let's talk about the difference between murder and killing. <laughs> the reason I bring that up is I had someone bring up this week. They're like, is there a difference between murder and killing? You know, we we see the different ways the thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder is translated. Um, you know, Genesis 9, 6 says, whoever sheds the blood of a man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. And Exodus come, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Leviticus, whoever takes a human life shall be put to death. Um, you know, the again, the way the world would look at that is say, if these men don't have the right to take a life, then how does David have the right to take their lives, right? You, it's, it seems like an inconsistency, or is there a difference? What, what would you say to that? I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, but what would you say to that? Yeah, yeah, you know, when we talk about murder, we're talking about an unjust killing, which implies that there are just killings. So the question is, well, what, what, would, be a, what would be a just killing? Well, the Bible clearly teaches that God has given the sword to earthly government, and obviously they'll be held accountable for how they use the sword. They can use it incorrectly, but they've been given this authority um, to to praise the good and to punish evil. In fact, it's their it's the chief purpose of government to shed the blood of of the unjust. Um, and so it, it it's not. It's not only that David's allowed to, uh, but if he's going to be a good king, uh, he needs to execute some kind of justice. I mean, obviously, he could throw them in jail or something, uh, you know, but, uh, but he, ha he has to punish evil or it will uh, grow like yeast. Um, that, that, uh, you know, here in Seattle, we're, uh, we're down, I think, 400-plus police officers that all kind of quit during, uh, you know, the riots of 2020 and COVID. You know, we're way down in police force, and you know everyone here is like, "Man, we need more police. We need more. We need more people in the streets with, uh, with uh, you know, uh, able to That's enforce, right?" right? And so, uh, you know, Dave, David actually, you could argue that he would be unjust if he didn't do this. That that this is his office, and that you know, a good king must punish murder. Yeah, and and I think that's basically the very. Uh, proper and normal response that most people give. But, it, you know, it's something that people kind of sometimes, I think, think a little deeply, too deeply about even because they think, well, you know, killing is killing is killing. But that's just it's just not the case. And, and whether we fully understand it or not, you know, God has given this vocation of exercising judgment and protection to uh, to earthly authorities. But I, I'll, but I'm also very glad that you brought up that that can be misused, though, for which they'll have to give an account. Um, yeah. and, and David certainly exercises his office here righteously, and and he, but he does it in a pretty gruesome way. He, he kills them. Um, he has the, his young man killed them. It cuts off their hands and their feet and hangs them beside the pool at Hebron. Um, Hebron very, being very important, the place where where David was first sort of made king officially, and then the place um, where we're going to see later on is a, is his son is going to try to use that as his launching site for his own campaign to be king. But anyway, the point is he hangs them and cursed as a man who hangs on a tree. What's significant about this particular. You there? What? Yeah. Sorry about that. What's significant about this particular uh, form of punishment? 
Yeah, um, I think I think you already you already uh, pointed out that it's it's uh, that he's uh, exposing their shame and, and showing that they're cursed and showing and showing that he has got nothing to do with this. Now, this is going to be not only is this justice, but this is politically smart to show the the tribes of Israel that he had no, he had no part in this. He had no part in Abner's death. He had no part in Ishbosheth's death. Uh, he does not. He's not that, and and therefore he can be their king, and he can unite them uh, because he because he shows that he'll give them justice for crimes against them, and so it's it's not only justice, but it's politically smart, and uh, and it's uh, it's you know showing that he has uh, he the farthest separation from the, from their behavior that possible to completely just shame them in death, um, and and then his love for Ishbosheth. Uh, and uh, burying uh, him, and then later uh, when the, I think the, the Gibeonites uh, execute justice against uh, seven of Saul's kids and grandkids, he also buries those bodies, and then and then finds the remains of Jonathan and Saul and buries them. So he's constantly showing respect for Saul's family and death, um, uh, giving them proper burial. There's also, by the way, a, a fun little play on words with the word. Uh, destroy i'll destroy you from the uh earth in the end of verse 11 the word destroy is birati which sounds like uh bureau uh you know these guys are from the, this family bureau and he goes i will birati you um uh, i'll remove you from the earth <laughs> and so he, he, even even in his um condemnation david is poetic Yes, he is. He is. Well, and you know what I also think that indicates beyond just him, you know, it's not just that he's doing a nice little turn of words, but he's not doing it in haste, right? He's doing it out of a clear conscience, a clear mind. These are, you know, he's not just so angry he's killing them. He has enough wherewithal to be a little poetic about it. (laughs) And I think that's going to be contrasted to some of the things that he might do later and what other, other kings have done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anything then, else about uh, this text as we come to the end? Yeah. Anything else? We're wrapping yeah, it up. I, 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 I just, you know, it always makes, when I read any of these stories, it always makes me think about uh, how uh, Christ has uh, mercy on a different soul and how Christ has mercy on, on yes. crippled uh, folks and, and lame and, uh, and, and Benjamites. And, uh, and so anyway, um, yeah, I, 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 I always see the full, full story as I'm reading this story. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's true. I, I think about that often of, of Saul and, um, you know, how, how Saul, uh, who then becomes St. Paul, for those who might have forgotten, and, and uh, of course, King Saul here uh, behind this story. Well, I tell you what, folks, um, we have come toward the end of our program, but I would really like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dr. Peter Elliott, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington. Uh, Pastor Elliot, you guys have VBS this uh, this summer? Yeah, we're going to do, we're gonna do a, sh- a shortened program. We, we It's been kind of dormant for a while, and we're going to try to okay. slowly revive it. Well, excellent. Yeah, that's what that's sort of what we're doing around here. Plus, we uh, we have a trip to the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum, so that should be fun. Uh, but anyway, I'm just glad that you took some time out of your, I'm sure, increasingly busy schedule as you're planning the great ministry there at your church for being on the show. Thanks again. God bless. 
Folks, Monday, when we come back together, David finally unites all Israel under his rule. And uh, in the meantime, he captures Jerusalem from the Jebusites and makes it his own city. He also receives support from a foreign king and expands his family and his wealth. His former allies and also foes to God's people, the Philistines, enter the scene again, and he does what Saul could not. He defeats them with God's help, of course. He's the king that God chose and blessed, but will he remain faithful to God? Well, he has his moments. We're going to talk about those over the next few weeks. But until Monday, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.